Shrinks Wrap is brought to you by West Coast Mindfulness Institute, a networking group for mindfulness-oriented clinicians. Shrinks Wrap is a psychology podcast where we introduce you to leading clinicians and thinkers and their personal journeys through the field. While we hope you enjoy this dive into the psyche, please note that this podcast is not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. To learn more about us or to find a therapist, visit wcminstitute.net. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shrinks Wrap. This is Rafael Cortina. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. To have a very special guest with me, Susan Brown is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice for over 35 years in San Diego, California. She specializes in the treatment of complex developmental trauma, addictions, and other maladaptive behavioral patterns. Her current focus for treatment is the integration of internal family systems and form processes within the EMDR therapy standard protocol. Susan was a principal investigator in a pilot study using EMDR Integrated Trauma Treatment Program in an adult drug court. She has co-authored several books and chapters and articles and presents two-day specialty workshops nationally on the application of EMDR therapy with this population. She has presented regularly at the Andrea International Conferences. She's an Andrea-approved consultant and basic training facilitator for the EMDR Humanitarian Assistance Program and the EMDR Institute. And I'm really, really, really excited to have you here with me, and I just want to welcome you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great, great. So I want to get us started with just talking a little bit about something that, that, uh, I mean, I just read there in your bio, and I know, uh, uh, full disclosure, I've taken a couple of your trainings, and I'm I'm an admirer and a fan of your work, and I use a lot of it as well in in my practice. Uh, But but I want to get us started with just talking a little bit about uh, some of the work that you're doing now, your your primary focus right now in terms of, of your thinking, your writing, your work. What are some of the things that, that you're interested in now? Yeah, pretty much precisely what is described in my current focus uh, now. Um, I have been a therapist since 1979. Uh, ooh, that makes me very old, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and I learned EMDR in 1999. So mm-hmm. for just under 20 years, I was practicing, um, I would say, very, um, you know, uh, what is that word? Just kind of whatever worked. I was, mm-hmm. I had cognitive work, I had psychodynamic work, um, gestalt was a thing of the day. Yeah, uh, you know, for us old timers that go back a long ways, family systems therapy. So um, I, I was always an aggregate therapist to begin with, mm-hmm. and whether I actually intended to be a trauma therapist or not, if you open your doors to practice in yes psychotherapy, the trauma is going to yes. walk through your door whether you knew to call it that or not. Yeah. Exactly. So it was fascinating. And uh, so uh, EMDR, you know, I have like a pre-EMDR clinical life mm-hmm. and then a post-EMDR clinical life that um, it, it was sort of like going from a really small city of knowledge mm-hmm. and understanding into a global understanding <laughs> of what was really possible for healing. Just remember how frustrating it used to be that you could talk and talk and talk about how the dots connected and how somebody got to the place that they were at. But that didn't heal it. That did not clear it. Uh, It uh, it didn't transform it, I guess is the word. Uh, It's just that people had a much better understanding of how they'd gotten there. And so it was like having a glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. And after that many years, uh, it was quite frustrating. And so one day a friend of mine knocked on my door and she said, I want you to go to this training with me. It's called EMDR. And she spelled it out, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. 
which I thought was maybe one of the most obnoxious names for therapy I'd ever heard. <laughs> and I know Francine later regretted not just calling it processing therapy, but it was too late. Too late, yeah. yeah. And I asked her a little bit about it, and she told me about this use of bilateral eye movements, and you don't do much talking, and I'm thinking, mm, no. <laughs> that does not sound like a training that I want to go to. But she said, it is not like you to be closed-minded, Susan. Mm. So I have heard amazing things about EMDR, and I'm not going alone, so you're coming with me. <laughs> and, and the rest is sort of history. Wow, say. Wow. Um, so, so, and and that was in, in the early phases of, of the EMDR, right? When in the it, 90s. When it first came into the more of a public view. and, and Yeah. And who, who did you train with back then? I trained with Andrew Leeds, Dr. Andrew Leeds, uh, who was a brilliant and fantastic trainer, teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and with uh, a woman named Barbara Parrott, who's probably a little less known. And then we did, um, I, I ultimately ended up doing some uh, specialty work with Francine Shapiro, being super fortunate there uh, because of my interest in addiction. And um, if anybody knew Francine Shapiro and you had some specialization in mm -hmm. something that she knew that EMDR would make such a huge difference, she would just latch on to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like white on red. And so I, I was super fortunate to have as much time and friendship and exposure to Francine as I did in those years. H hence the drug court uh, study. Yes. And getting so, yes. so much support from her. So, yeah. So, so, so you go into this training. I'm thinking back of that story you were telling. You're like, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do it. And suddenly it, 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 it's a life changer or, or a work changer at least. Yeah. It was both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No question that um, psychotherapy practice was really never going to be the same again. Although you mm -hmm. didn't know it right away. It, it yeah. takes a couple of years, at least in the beginning, to acclimate to something so different. The yes. whole paradigm was yes. so different. Yes. Uh, but in the trainings, of course, there's a practicum. Mm -hmm. And so you're made to pick something of your own um, that you are told um, not to pick something deep or dark or something from, you know, way back in your family history as if that was possible <laughs> because <Correct>. whatever, <laughs> whatever you pick, you're, you're going back whether you're, you want to it's or not. lead there. Yeah. Right. But I do remember, you know, picking something that I thought was fairly benign you know, a 13-year-old adolescent sort of target, uh, yeah. pure target. And um, the experience I had, it, it actually was so transformative because that particular, mm -hmm. so I was in my, I don't know how old I was, 20 years ago. I was in my 50s, I guess, uh, when I started training. But that had been with me since I was 13. Mm. And it was with me in the same way, with the same amount of pain, the same amount of shame. Uh, and it was shocking to me to get to the end of a practicum in a training with this weird therapy. Fortunately, yeah. my friend was one of my triad. Uh, so there was yes. trust there and wasn't anything she didn't know about anyway. But the experience truly was transformative because mm -hmm. at the end of the third day and going back to that moment, I mean, it had nothing. It had yeah. no energy in it whatsoever. It was just, God, that poor kid. Mm. Nobody to talk to, nobody to tell. It wouldn't be something you'd tell anyone because you'd feel ashamed. Yeah. But it was gone. Yeah. And all that was left was a compassionate grown-up. Mm -hmm. That's what it was like. Yeah, that's quite special. I, I, I remember 
my first experience of EMDR and also thinking, what is this therapy that you don't talk that much, right? Yeah. It, 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 kind of like it, it made no sense to me as well. I can right. relate to that, right? It's, it's, it, it, therapy is all about talking. What, are, what, are, what do you mean, right? And anybody that's listening that has experienced EMDR, both as a provider or, or uh, receiving it, yeah. uh, I think what you said is, is very true where, where you get to this point of, of healing the experience, right? Mm-hmm. And being able to, to either embrace the, the compassionate adult or be able to, I see it sometimes in my own work or in clients that suddenly they have happy memories from childhood mm-hmm. that they didn't remember, right? Uh, I mean, all those things that get locked up with pain that sometimes are, are joyful, beautiful experiences or compassion or connectiveness that, that, that are, it cannot be reached because of the pain around it. That's right. It's just as if storm clouds come and block the sun, but not that the sun isn't actually there. You just can't access it. Yeah, that's a great way of saying that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, that, those were my beginnings uh, of EMDR. And uh, when I say the rest is history, it really is. Uh, there was something so uh, compelling about the idea of breaking through that glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know what your experience was coming out as a, a, a seasoned therapist, but an absolute infant with the MDR. And mm-hmm. in the beginning, those basic trainings, they're very structured. Yes. So there's, you know, a step-by-step procedure you go through. And you have a little cheat sheet. And, uh, you know, I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to transfer that to the, the seat in my office with people I'd been working with for a while. Yes. So I just remember picking someone with whom I was already quite close and connected and and stuck. Stuck mm-hmm. with this this piece of material that we were just going around in circles with where intellectually you get it, but viscerally you don't feel it. Yes. 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 And I just said to her, okay, so I went to straining. <laughs> you know, that thing we've been working on all these months, are you game to try this? So yeah. I, I'm really not sure exactly what I'm doing, but I have a, a formula to follow. And if you're a game, I'm game. And I literally sat there with my little piece of paper and set up the protocol and went through the whole process with her on a very specific piece of uh, stuck material. And I would say at the end of that session, but especially after the second one, she just looked at me. She said, this is magic. Wow. I thought, it's possible. Yeah. (laughs) Because... How long have we been working on this? Yes. Yeah. And then it's just, you know, the courage to keep at it when you feel so um, uh, awkward with Mm. it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not what you've been doing for the last 15 years. Yes. But the outcomes were worthy of that stumbly journey yeah it really was yes that experience with with that first client and even though it was was this thing that was awkward and different and and, and different way of doing therapy um how how long did it take before it became such an integral part of of the work and you started thinking about it in terms of addiction work and, and 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 that transition okay so that's a great question um, it took me, because I was so enamored with it, I used it virtually every day with every client who mm. would allow me to. And fortunately, I had a pretty stable group of people in terms of people mm-hmm. I knew already in my practice. So I wasn't doing this with yes. brand new people. Uh, in fact, I think the first person I actually tried it on was my mother. Interesting. Which is a very interesting little yeah. tidbit in itself. Yes. Um, but it took, uh, I would say a good year of steady 
mm-hmm. practice to get just to get more comfortable in the flow of it and not to need yes. a piece of paper and just to um what I what I found was that there was this spinal column of basic mm-hmm. training of a protocol that had steps that you follow yes. sequentially. That's just the mm-hmm. spinal column. The rest of what you can do with a therapy like EMDR, which is now a whole therapy approach, it is Correct. not a technique, is all the flesh of it, the art of EMDR, that moment to moment uh, a, a, a connection to what's happening with the client that very moment and that very next moment and what you do or do not say or do yeah. in those moments really begins to, to fill out yes, and expand. So it becomes uh, much more than just that basic protocol you learned initially. Yeah. And, and you're hitting on something that, that I'm very, very passionate about and, and, and and we end up talking about this uh, in this podcast a lot because it, it's the art of the work that we do, right? Which right. is very hard to define, unfortunately, and, and it's very hard to 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 explain. But it's this sense that uh, for me, it's in, in this space of connectedness with another, you know, and just being yes. with the other. Where we're and and it takes a little bit of, of courage and intuition to just kind of like say, I'm just going to go with what's here. But but there is this yeah. this very uh, I love your analogy that that starts to build the body around the spine of AMDR. And that's probably true for, for any focus, right? That you, you, you learn, you learn the techniques in training, but the art is what you do with that technique. Absolutely. That was part of it. um, That instead of feeling so rigid and limited, it began to feel more expansive uh, and, and creative. Mm. So, you know, once again, with the with the the symptoms of addiction, addictions, compulsive behaviors, um, that too sort of found me. I did not go looking to become an addiction counselor, uh, although the actual beginnings of that role of mine yes. was in uh, putting myself through school. I was in Washington, D.C. at American University, and in D.C. is a place called Georgetown. Yes. And Georgetown in D.C. is sort of like uh, the gas lamp quarter is here. Okay. Bars and restaurants and, you know, beautiful, fun places for the college town. Yeah. And I probably worked in half the restaurants and bars, tending bar, waiting tables, whatever, but especially behind the bar. That's essentially what I was doing, was sitting there listening to people's pain. Yeah. Uh, but with too much alcohol in there. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but I, I yeah. did learn a lot about, uh, about alcoholism yes. and uh, about the impact of substances. But I did love listening mm-hmm. and hearing stories and and helping without realizing you were even helping. Yeah. So it was just one of those things where when trauma walks in the door, uh, certainly not everyone with trauma history has difficulty with uh, some addiction or compulsion. Correct. However, in reverse, I haven't ever worked with people struggling with an addiction who don't have a trauma or neglect developmental piece of the puzzle yes and it's a continuum so it can be anything from benign neglect Mm -hmm. all the way to very severe trauma yes you know uh and so since that was the story with addiction one of my clients who went around in circles with recovery and addiction and recovery and relapse and recovery and relapse. We just kept going around in circles, but she had a very severe trauma history. Mm -hmm. And I asked her what happened when she started to try to get sober. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, for starters, anyway, one of the memories from her childhood, um, it just kicked her butt every time. 
Mm. Every time she stopped drinking and using this particular memory came up, which was a belief that she was responsible for killing her father. Wow. And the story went, she's 11 years old. Her parents are divorced. She's living with the mom Mm -hmm. and her brother. Father's out of the house. Um, And the rule was that the father couldn't come to the house and certainly couldn't come in the house Mm. when the mother wasn't there. So my client and her brother were in the house alone. Father had been a very heavy smoker in a severe case of emphysema. Mm. He was coming down the street, pulling an oxygen tank behind him. Wow. And he comes up to the door and he's banging on the door, telling the kids to let him in, that he's running out of oxygen. Oh, wow. So the brother is saying, let him in, let him in. And my client is saying, mom said, no, mom said, no, we can't. And she was the older one and she didn't open the door. She said she couldn't. Mm -hmm. And her father turned around and left. And about three days later, the father had died. Okay. He went to the hospital and he died. So not only did she blame herself for that Mm -hmm. death, but her mother told her she was responsible. Oh, wow. She should have opened the door. So that was the memory. Yes. Okay, well, that's trauma. Yes. And it seemed to me that if we were going to really utilize EMDR, Mm -hmm. we should be trying it with traumas like that. Yes. That are linked to a behavior that's linked to the trauma. Yes. Uh, and I didn't, because I was not a specialist in addiction at the time, I had no idea that you were never supposed to do any trauma work within the first couple of months, first year, whatever you have to be sober for a year. <laughs> I did not know that. So in my ignorance, I went ahead and set up an MDR session with her for that particular memory. Three, actually, sessions. Mm-hmm. And... Um, long story short, so she had her first experience of sobriety after maybe 20 some years of using. Yeah. She had that sobriety for 65 days, had a relapse. Yeah. Disappeared for a couple of months, came back and said, can we try this again? Because now I know that there's something out here that can help. Yes. And I can't keep doing this or I'm going to die. Yeah. And so then I got some flack for doing work with somebody who was still obviously not sober. Yes. But I guess, you know, some mistakes become blessings. And for her, it was. Yeah. Uh, But it did teach me that I had to go slow and I had to be careful. Yes. Uh, And so I learned a lot during those years about how to do this and how not to do this with certain people. West Coast Mindfulness Institute is a networking group for mindfulness-oriented clinicians who are dedicated to learning together and collaborating to better serve our community. WCMI hosts educational events for both clinicians and members of the public to promote learning, growth, and self-awareness. If you're seeking support, follow the link in this episode where our referral specialists will connect you to the right therapist to meet your needs. Visit us at wcminstitute.net. And and I think that that awareness of being able, the need to go slow, but at the same time, I think one of the big shifts that is happening in in the addiction world, and as we understand trauma more, and I think what, what's happening is on the trauma world, we yes. always knew, have known for a, a long time that there's a link with addiction. But I think the addiction treatment world has not fully embraced that until recently is beginning to. And one of the things that I think is shifting is this, this concept that you need to be fully sober to work on the pain. And, and I don't think that's possible, right? When, when the... The addictive behavior is serving the purpose of anesthetizing, disconnecting, managing. Yes, it's linked, right? So I think I, I agree. 
you have to be very mindful and very careful. But at the same time, telling someone you just need to sit in misery for a year before you could do anything, it's it's not possible. It's not realistic. I can't exactly remember when uh, internal family systems specifically became what uh, ended up being what, what I think is a terrific marriage. Mm-hmm. Because we'd always been doing ego state work. Mm. We'd always been doing parts work. I mean, all the way back to Gestalt, it's the same. Uh, uh, Dick Schwartz talked about having his clients move back and forth in chairs. Yes. Well, until he realized, I think one of his clients said, you know, I really don't need to change chairs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Inside. Yeah. But there was, uh, uh, my, whatever my exposure was to I- IFS, was as intensely um, compelling in its own right as EMDR was when I was introduced to it. Mm-hmm. So even though parts work had always been done to a certain extent, ego state work with uh, within EMDR, especially with complex cases. Yes. Um, the the way in which internal family systems formatted and structured its approach and its procedures just happened to resonate with me Mm -hmm. deeply, partly because there were so many parallels. Yes. Um, The non-pathological conceptualization. Um, I think the main, the main takeaway for me was that uh, EMDR was, was missing more parts work than I think it really needed, especially in preparation phase. Yeah. And I thought that IFS could use some bilateral stimulation for some of its unburdening work mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some of its processing work. So to combine the two just seemed like a natural. Yeah. And yeah. I have not stepped back from that since. I also got very lucky um, to have Dick Schwartz as a consultant with a couple of clients of mine, mm. which we did together. So we did a Oh, cool. So he was working with my client. I got to watch. Um, and he, he was a, a terrific help for some beyond complicated clients. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think IFS does give give a, a really interesting framework, and 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 being a Gestalt psychotherapist, I'm I'm, I'm actually a, a certified Gestalt psychotherapist. Yeah. Uh, IFS speaks a lot of the same language. Yes, and and I, and, I, and I agree. Like I I I do an empty chair a year, maybe you know, because I think it's it's for most people they could hold it within. Um, and and I think that the it is a very good marriage, as you said, in terms of that of that framework of that work of that helping. Because I think that what I see with clients is that when you start explaining the the, the parts work, it just makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's it's a language to something they've been experiencing that it helps explain a lot of what's going on. I find that to be true also with uh, polybagel theory and some of the. Uh, of the understanding the the nervous system pieces, you know, I think that it really helps to clarify, well, this thing that I've been feeling and experiencing actually has a reason. Absolutely. And the deep pathologizing, I think, especially, especially with addictions, compulsive behaviors, self-destruction, that it is so, um, deeply shameful for most people where it's a part of themselves that they loathe and wish would just die and go away without yet realizing that that is a part that once upon a time may have saved their lives. Yes. And that that was its original intent. Yes. Not to harm and kill it. The the client. Yes. Yes. I think has been the, the most sort of heartfelt shift in that in EMDR work is not so much 
Well, EMDR has been thought of as a non-relational therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's got a protocol. Not remotely the case. Um, relational interweaves, the relationship itself, yes. But it's different than IFS, I think, in a really important way, which is that it's not the relationship between us and the client that is the repair. It's a piece of it, but it's not the repair. It's the person's own self to their own part. Yes. That's the repair that they take with them forever. Mm -hmm. And that I think has wowed clients that this actually belongs to them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's wonderful. Yeah. Because then they don't need you anymore eventually, right? That this is something they could take. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 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 Not client retention. Exactly. Yeah. I always get very excited when we get to the point where the clients, I don't need you anymore. I'm like, wonderful. I don't know what to talk about anymore. <laughs> that was the whole point. Yes. Yeah. And 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 I think that 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 making that uh such a integral part of the work, right? That the the the, the relationship that's being repaired is a relationship within themselves. Yes. That that's that's key. That's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that uh, even clients have asked me, you know, uh, why is it that you do this work with addiction? You Don't you get tired of, of, of clients that are relapsing or struggling? Ask me that question sometimes. And, and you said something right now that, that for me is the reason why I, I also never, ever thought I was going to be doing addiction work. I, I talk about this in one of our prior episodes. Um, and and then when I first started it, what I realized early on, even though I didn't fully understand all the complexities of trauma and all those things, was mm-hmm. that that th- there is this very, especially in early recovery, that this very raw humanity that is there, right? That that you could see the person yes. that has done this eventually very harmful behavior mm-hmm. as a way of surviving. And how important it is for, for healing to happen, so they don't continue to self-destruct in something that at one point was a way of surviving. Absolutely, and, and that's amazing work. It's beautiful work. Yeah, and that being able to see that the severity of the addiction is equal to the severity of the pain. Yes, and to just first unlink that self-loathing yeah loathing of the part and to really begin to appreciate what its original intent was is mostly what begins to allow us to get in to what it's been trying to protect all these years Mm -hmm. or stay away from (laughs) (laughs) right which is sometimes the challenge right because we we and i'm sure you you get this is one of the biggest challenges is when we get someone who has the addictive behavior, but they don't see no reason for it, right? They, they, they don't see the pain behind it, or they don't want to see the pain behind it. And 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 that's kind of like that that early phase of, of, of working with someone who has made tremendous efforts and successfully has completely drowned this pain. But mm-hmm. but unfortunately, they, they have taken everything around them with that they they, they eventually drown out their whole life mm-hmm. right and 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 i think that i'm curious about your thoughts about that 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 early part of the work with someone who is unable or unwilling to to see what the pain is they only see the fact that um i'm an alcoholic or an addict and and i like it and that's the reason why you know it that is it's not ringing a bell with me at the moment. And maybe it's Mm -hmm. because it's been a lot of years of starting everybody out who comes with that particular issue. Yes. Is just beginning to ask them when they first picked up the behavior. Yes. What was going on? Yeah. Or how did it help? 
And when I ask how, how did it help? They usually give me that look. Like, right? Yeah. I'm not kidding. Yes. How did it help you? And when we get serious in that moment, usually you get tears Mm -hmm. and some sort of connection. Yes. Yeah. That has certainly been my recent experience. Yeah. That's that's it, right? Is that to to your point earlier, the the non pathological, non judgmental approach of actually having an, an honest, direct conversation of, of what is the, the the value or the usefulness of this behavior. That's right. It, and, and so I think that, that, that the amount of shaming that happens yes. in our society and honestly in the treatment world and in the medical model of addiction, uh, it, it just creates something that it's a bigger barrier and something for people to grab on. I'm just this bad person diseased yes yeah yeah even even that word just 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 ah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah the fact that there's a great deal of disorder going on in there yes and that especially when it started early mm. would have had a biological and a neurophysiological effect on somebody's brain Yes, mm-hmm. but that doesn't, to me, make it a disease state. Correct. I um, agree. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see addiction as a the as a developmental adjustment. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that unfortunately um, has the power to impact the trajectory of your brain development, and yes. that you happen to also. Yes. Be someone with that added family vulnerability. You know, obviously not everybody who's abusing substances ends up in that 10%. Yes, exactly. Then is in that 10%. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just a cluster. Yeah. And, and it's kind of the, the, the goal of every addiction, not just substance abuse. Every addiction is to change brain chemistry, right? That, that That's the change goal. how I feel. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that uh, with your 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 perspective on that early moment of of asking those questions yeah. it, it it one of the things that comes up for me and and it relates to your experience bartending and hearing people's stories yeah. is is because I think this is in my perspective one of the reasons that I ended up in this field is because I am fascinated by people's stories mm-hmm. right and and I talk about that often and and it started for you even just just hearing people's stories in the bars was interesting, right? And eventually, now you're being curious about people's story in, in the office, right? But is that fascination for for stories and people? And um, yeah, so, so I'm a little bit curious about that part of you, right? You, so you, you were somewhat aware or pretty aware of it when you were bartending. You know, there was this part about enjoying the stories. Uh, does it go back even further for you in terms of being interested in stories? Well, the interest in in feeling more connected to other people, mm-hmm. that goes far back. Yes. Because uh, as a young person, before 13, my main challenge was in peer relationships. Um. I, I still to this day don't know why I had such a hard time fitting in or being asked or being included. It just seemed like I was always on the outside looking in. Mm. But the that um that urge to be a part of that just hardwired in. Mm-hmm. You can't erase that. And so to to feel confused by it and frustrated by it. And then unfortunately, as well-meaning as both of my parents might have been, they were offering nothing in terms of any kind of psychological process. You know, their explanations about what was happening were simplistic and yes, there was just a, a big gap you know, fifties mm-hmm. parents and a sixties kid. Mm. Uh, so it was very lonely. 
Mm -hmm. It was really very lonely to live an adolescence like that until I made a best friend. And, you know, from there it got a little easier. But when you sit behind the bar and, you know, how alcohol loosens everything up, then people spoke um, deeply and from the heart Mm -hmm. about things that were hard to talk about. And I, it, it made me feel very connected to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that they felt the same way. And I guess that was the draw is that was something missing for me in my early life mm-hmm. type of work, just handed it over on a platter. Yeah. Yeah. And then to do it professionally, um, it's just a gift. It's, it's mm-hmm. an absolute blessing to do this. It's, it's not work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not work. It's what we live for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, because at the, uh, uh, at the end that, that this, that connectiveness piece, I think mm-hmm. that, um, one of the ways that we connect as humans is through stories to getting to know the other, right? The, the essence of intimacy in its simplest form is I want to get to know you and you, I want you to know me. Right. And, and I think that in, in, in finding that and, and being someone who's open to the other, right. In the office for that connectiveness, that is unique on its own. Right. And in, in the world that is unique on its own. And, maybe in, in the bar when you're intoxicated, but that's a different kind of connectiveness, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean the, the person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. I, it would not make you a great bartender if you were utilizing the product. Correct. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is, it is a blessing. I agree with you. I feel that often in, in, in our work. And, and I think that, one of the things that I'm always mindful in terms of our listeners, because I think we, we have listen, listeners who are in the field, but also people who are not. And I think it, it's, it's really wonderful for me to be able to share with people who are not therapists. You know, what is the beauty of therapy for us that do this work, right? That, that connectiveness, that value of the other is what makes it special, right? Because I think that, that Hopefully that will be more inviting for people who are in need of hope, support, in need of help. To know that 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 most of us that, that do this work, we do it because we're we're truly interesting in humanity. We're truly interested in healing. We're truly interesting in connecting and yeah. and being a support of others. Yeah, I like that word. Really, we're inviting people mm-hmm. to come in. Yeah. And share as little or as much as they wish without us having an agenda for them. Yes. And maybe that's one of the most surprising things when people who are really into the, the addiction maelstrom is uh, my job is not to make you stop drinking or using yes. or shopping or porn. Right? Yes. <laughs> like that yes. or eating. Yeah, that's that's not my role. It's really for you to decide what you want for yourself. And I'm happy to help you get what you want if I'm able. Yeah. yeah because I think that the, 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 the counter will phenomenon, right? That, that if we yeah. feel pushed, we push back. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm someone that, especially in my adolescence, had a very healthy dose of counter will. Right. So <laughs> I know what it is to be on the other side. So I agree. It's it's not for me to tell you how to live your life, Mm-mm. and 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 that's such an integral piece of healing that that I can't choose it for you, but I can help you figure it out. That's what you need. Yeah. What I do try to cultivate in the very beginning and all along, I think, is just mutual honesty. Mm. That yes. uh, if not not sure why you would be here. Yes. And I would hope that you would trust me with your honesty. Yeah. And, and that's something that I remember as a young therapist, I was very terrified of, of, of fully uh, 
fully showing more of me in, in the counseling session, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm, I'm at a point where that's the only way I know how to do the work. Mm-hmm. Because I think that, that, that for me is very true. We, 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 for me is I'm, I'm, I'm expecting for you to show you and hear who you are and trust me with your life. Mm-hmm. I, I could, I could show me too. And that's that part of being honest, right? One of the things that I often tell people that I work with is I'm not going to tell you something I don't believe, right? I don't, I don't bullshit, right? So if I tell you I'm excited for you, I'm excited for you. I'm not just saying that because it's a nice thing to do, right? right. right? So, so that, that, that mutual honesty is such a special experience. Um, yeah. And so the whole, uh, subject of self-disclosure is um, explored in an interesting way in our ethics classes. <laughs> how much, how little, when, why, what, for what purpose. I mean, that's a whole dimension unto itself. Correct. Um, yeah. But um, I think we're not so helpful as total blank slates. Exactly. Where there is something that we could really share that means something to what it is we are working on. Correct. That might help you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that we don't end up getting idealized and put up on some fake shelf uh, as the experts with no problems. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, I remember being in training and I mean, I respect how people work. So it's not a criticism on any other therapist that works sure. differently. But I remember being in, in training and, and somebody asking the question of what what if somebody asked me if, if I'm married or if I have children? Yeah. And, and the teacher said, you don't tell them that. You ask them, why is that important for you to know? And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, well, that, that's kind of not that's a little too much right it's like i if i if you're here sharing your deepest parts and i can't even answer a basic question like if i'm 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 married it feels disingenuous right so i think that that that's kind of like the the point and i agree with you is that there there are certain times where i mean this there's all the 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 guidelines in terms of 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 sharing our parts but there's sometimes that that our, our story, little pieces of our story could be the most engaging thing. Absolutely. There's something off-putting about, why do you ask? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's a human-to-human connection, not a, not a, a provider-to-client connection. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the, the boundaries are certainly there, and they need of course. to be. Um, so that it really isn't about them coming there to meet our needs. Yes. We really are there to meet theirs. Um, but I, I just am happy that there is much more gray area about yes. that nowadays yes. than there was certainly when I started. Yeah, it's a professional relationship, but it's a human-to-human professional relationship. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm also um curious about an, another piece that uh so so you you did this work you integrated the the IFS working with the Schwartz and Francine Shapiro and then it came to a point where uh, I'm curious I'm not going to assume anything how how did this came to I want to share this I want to train people I I have this things that I have come to in this knowledge and I want to share it with others Oh, we have to start with the um, the absolute trauma of public speaking. Mm. We have to go there first. <laughs> uh, so that that never would have happened. There would never would have been any classes, any workshops, any teaching publicly if it hadn't been for EMDR. Wow! Because yeah. there was no way. That, that, that I was going to uh, be that exposed. And that, ironically, went back to 13, to what originally got targeted at 13. Can't we come full circle. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. That the, the exposure there uh, set the tone for, well, I'm never putting myself out there like that again. 
Yeah. And I remember the first time I did a, uh, a day long workshop, uh, I did it with uh, a colleague of mine, Alicia Outcall. Mm-hmm. And we were in uh, Olympia, Washington, in this church basement, and it was pouring rain. And I'm sensitive to light and uh, weather. And, you know, it's like a place I could never live because I would be in, in a deep hole all the time. Mm. We were up there, not a good traveler. I'm doing this first you know, workshop. And I did it with my friend because I wasn't going to do it alone. But even there, I mean, thank God for Alicia, because at one point it's my turn to do a couple of slides, absolute whiteout, just total freeze. <laughs> Looked at Alicia, handed over the microphone. I can back online. Fortunately, it was a very friendly group. So, you know, we laughed, but it was frightening. It was, it was painful. Mm. I thought, you know, people wanted to know what I did because Mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever it was, where it got around. So I wanted to teach. It's not mine to keep if people need it. Yes. I was not going to be able to do it under those conditions. Mm-hmm. So I just signed myself up for a bunch of hours of EMDR and then, you know, just practice and repetition eventually just get desensitized. <laughs> but I, I absolutely know that would never have occurred without EMDR. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Because I, I have seen you in training and, and, and with hundreds of people, right? So it's, 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 for someone who was afraid of public speaking, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, so a little bit surreal, but yeah. Is it exciting now? Do you get do you get some some fulfillment from it now? Well, total, and it's why I haven't done anything in person. I just did the the last in person workshop was that was this two day Orange County one that just happened to have gotten recorded, mm. and so then it could be used as an online offering. Because otherwise, I would be speaking to that little green light yes. on this screen, and that is dissociative for me. Yeah. I need people. I yes. Need people energy. Yes. So when we're allowed to get back together again in groups, then I'll come back out. <laughs> but yeah, I have not done one webinar uh, since COVID. Wow. Yeah. So that was that was like like perfect timing that 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 you recorded these Total. online version right on time. Total serendipity. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm and that's the training that's available for anybody that wants to take it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can get to it from my website on the workshop tab. Okay. Um, and you can get to it. Uh, I'm, I'm not actually selling it. EMDR professional training. Uh, EMDRPT is who is actually selling it. Okay. So either way. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll have a link to your website on the description of the podcast for anybody that's interested. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So that could be easy access to uh, to yeah. the training and finding more about you. But yeah, I have actually done uh, quite a few online trainings, but on Zoom where, where I could see people and mm-hmm. it's better than the blank screen because I have done a couple of webinars just to the screen. They're tough. They're tough. Couldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because Good. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty good at, 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 I could talk for an hour to, to, to no one and entertain myself. That's probably part of it, but uh, it is challenging to not walk away from that. I have no idea how I did, you know, it's like, I tried to be as engaged and as entertaining as possible, but there was no feedback. You know, it's like, so who knows? You know what it reminds me of, I think, is an experience of a still face. You know that still face? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. That there was nothing. There was no energy, only mine, and nothing coming back. And it was just unbearable. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. 
I'm glad other people are doing that. <laughs> I get to watch other people. But it was out of my bandwidth. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense with, with what we've been talking about, right? That that, that part of connecting, belonging, being with others, being the, the energy piece for you, that without that, it's really hard to just talk. Yeah, very. Yeah, this yeah. is easy because we're together. Yes. Yeah. And we can see each other. So, right. yeah, yes, yes. Which has been a, a, a very wonderful discovery forced by COVID that, the telehealth is actually a, a wonderful way of doing therapy. It actually uh, is. Um, there are some benefits, oddly, mm -hmm. that you don't have in person and some challenges. Yes. I think not everybody Correct. is a good fit for teletherapy. Yes. Thank God it was available to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah for, for more than one reason. But yes, definitely it was it was a blessing to have the opportunity to that this happen when we have the technology pretty much rarely available for most of us to to be able to do this and not just be completely isolated. Yeah. It also opened up the state. The whole we're a license in California can only yes. in California, but it it opened up the entire state. Because it didn't matter that somebody lived in San Francisco. Correct. It's Correct. Yeah, that, that's been the other fascinating piece that having clients that are not in living in, in our local area, right? Yeah. And, and working with people in other parts of the state. And and I, I was a, a firm non-believer in, in, in telehealth, right? In teletherapy. I was like, there, there's no way you could do work without the people being there. And I'm so glad to find out how wrong I was, right? Because what it, did you find that shocked you, surprised you the most? I think that uh, similar to what you were saying, for some clients it was better. You know, I think the the safety of being in their own space, in their own home, yep, and that intimacy allowed them to be much more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I think that for some clients, not having to drive to the office and deal with, uh, especially in rush hour traffic, you know, an, an hour of traffic just to get here, that by the time they get here, they were already frustrated and tired. True. Uh, made a big difference. And the other was that human connection, that this whole thing we've been talking about, it, 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 it happens through through the distance with the screen, right? As long as you're, you're, because I have had those experience of feeling the person in the room, mm -hmm. even though we're, we're not right. We're just mm -hmm. seeing each other on a screen. Absolutely. So, so just being able to physically see one another and interact, yeah. even if we're far away, the human connection persists. Still there. Yeah. Yeah. Can't hug. Ready yes. But <laughs> just about everything else. Yeah. Yes. But Thanks. We are very blessed. We are. We are. But I really appreciate you spending this time with me and sharing so much about your work and your life and perspectives. It's uh, fascinating. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, on, on, I'm uh, starting to show some sort of a bias because I'm interviewing people that I really like and admire. Uh, and I have some, some sort of personal experience of, of learning from, but uh, I, I promise we'll, we'll I'll, I'll expand more, but for now I get to do this and it's wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And the opportunity. Wonderful. To, to whoever's willing to listen. Yes. Yeah. That's the fun part of the, the podcast, right? We get to enjoy a conversation and then who knows who listens, right? We'll, we'll, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting way of communicating because it goes from, from engaging in a conversation to then uh, somebody listening without us being there. Yes. And especially post COVID with, within COVID, I should say the skyrocketing of Addiction, depression, anxiety. Yes. Uh, this just could not be more timely. I agree. Yes. I, and, and I think that for, for this has always been my, my philosophy. Like if, if one person listens, I already feel like they're my job, right? So yeah. if anybody that's listening here, 
it's able to have a sense of connecting and being aware that healing is possible, that you don't have to live with the consequences of your pain for the rest of your life. Amen. We did our job. Amen. Well, thank you, Rafael. For thank the you. It's great. Thank you for listening to String Trap. If you would like to learn more about Susan Brown or connect with her, you could follow the link next to her bio. If you're a clinician and you're interested in her training, you could follow the link in the description of this podcast. As always, please rate and review. Your opinions are really important to us. Thank you for listening and see you next time.